two reasons why it is important for us to cover this material. Um, we will do more marriage counseling than anything else. And I can go back to my last 10 cases in the last year or so, and eight of them have been marriage counseling. Uh, and another is it's a good place to apply these principles personally. So, but there's two reasons why I might be teaching this. Hey, Joe, can you turn that down a little bit? Maybe it's too close. Um, two reasons why I might be teaching this is because I haven't been married near as long as Brother Bill and Pastor Kevin, or maybe that I just am not as good a husband as them. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why they put me on this. But um, there's three words that can best describe a husband's role. Learner, lover, and leader. And we'll work with those in that order. So learners first. 1 Peter 3, 7, if you'll look with me. Um, chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. It's a command that husbands would dwell with them, which is their wives, with understanding. We'll start there world says you can't understand women. And maybe so. But as a husband, you only have to understand one. That's it. So, it's a command that takes time. Time spent. May assume that when you first get married, you know everything you need to know about. That's why you want to marry. You want to spend the rest of your life with the person that you know from that little short engagement or even just all through high school together or whatever it is. You just feel like you know everything about them. When you get married, if you've done it properly, in terms of biblically, and you got engaged, and you were courting, and you didn't live together, and didn't have sexual intimacy first, then you don't really know as much as you think you know, especially when you have to live under the same roof. And as Pastor Kevin said earlier, two sinners getting married together is just like, I feel like it's like a comedy show for God to watch, because it's just, it's struggle, right? And he watches us build our faith in each other and in God. And as we grow closer to God, we grow closer together. But uh, it's certainly difficult. But it's a command that takes time. Uh, but you need to learn your wife as husbands. So primarily, I'd be speaking to husbands tonight. Um, so you need to learn them. Continue to learn them. It takes time. So whatever you thought you knew, you've got to continue to learn. Early marriage, middle marriage, later years constantly learning more about your wife. Uh, we'll talk more about that too. It's a command that takes study. So I want you to write this down. I owe you. And the first letter, I, is interview. Okay? So you won't learn your wife without taking time to interact, communicate, listen, study, and observe all these things to help you learn your wife. Okay, so interview. Have you ever sat in a restaurant and watched people? I'm, I love to watch people. I love to interact with people. I just, I'm just a people person. Um, but if you're ever in a restaurant, you can really tell which ones are married and which ones aren't because their faces are buried in their plates. They're married, right? They're not even talking. They're just eating because that's what they came here. They got a purpose. But you see two couples looking at each other, talking and just laughing and wiping each other with a napkin. Probably not married yet. I don't think so. 
just funny. Or, I mean, like, I've been married 16 years, not near as long as Brother Bill and Pastor Kevin and maybe many, many of you in here too. 16 years, it's long enough to have a little bit of experience. But have you ever driven a long car ride? We have four kids. We drive everywhere. Practices and just my family's in Florida. My wife's family was in Oregon, but they live here now. So our trips are Florida, Oregon. So we've taken many hours of driving. Have you ever done that and just didn't even talk for hours? You're like maybe buried in your phones. That's crazy these days because phones, I mean, I wasn't married before cell phones, but I remember the little Nokia snake phone because I was a teenager at that time. But uh, just being buried in your phone, it's just like no interaction. And before you know it, three, four hours go by. It's a struggle not to, to be able to just kind of be together but not really communicate or interact. So, yeah, you can tell. Uh, so interview. There's, um, let me see what I got here. There's a handout, might be in your notes, 49 questions to ask your spouse. This is great for the first word, interview, is having questions to talk with your wife about. Now, this isn't a sheet that you will just give your wife and she'll answer all your questions. These are like conversation starters. If you've lost that spark or you've lost that interactive or learning your wife or you feel like you're in a relationship rut, consider dating your wife again and use these questions just as a, as a way to get started. And there's 49 of them because you can just add one of your own personal to make it 50, whatever. I don't know how they came up with just 49. But maybe on a date night, you can, as husbands, can read through them and think through ways in which you can interact in a different way with your wife to learn more about her. You're interviewing and asking questions so that you can gain more knowledge or understanding. So, next one. Uh, not there yet. Okay. So, IOU, the first one was interview. The O is observe. So, watching your wife. So, not like stalking her, just watching. So you want to know what your wife likes. Uh, does she like white gold rings or yellow gold rings? Um, do you notice when she colors her hair? Pop quiz. Do you know what she was wearing last night? Yes, I think. Um, but you're just observing. You're watching. You're paying attention. Okay? What are her greatest challenges in a week? What makes her most joyful? What does she enjoy the most? Noticing, noticing, noticing. Not being buried in the phone. You know when your wife is hurting. You know when she's tired. Okay? Just all observation for the purpose of learning. Next one for IOU is understand. Interview, observe, and understand. And if you notice, interview is communication. Observe is non-communication, and, uh, and, uh, and understand is your response. Understanding your wife. You understand what makes your spouse tick, or you know what makes her tick, right? Do you, do you understand her point of view? What's her perspective on child rearing? How did she grow up? My wife was homeschooled, I was not. So a lot of discussion about how we raise our kids. But um, 
What do you understand about it? Would you say that, would she say that you understand her 100% of the time? 75%? 10%? I don't know. My brother Bill has a book in his library. It's called What Men Know About Women. And when you open it up, all the pages are blank. <laughs> but I, I want to, I hope that's not a commentary of your own marriage and your own understanding of your wife. Another question is, if you were tasked to write a book about your wife, what would it be? Men, would it be a children's book? full of cover, colored pages and like a few words and just 10 pages long? Or would it be like an encyclopedia? You know? How much do you know her? Right? We'll take this back to scripture in a minute. But understand. Understand. Definitely want to try to use the 49 questions. It's helpful. Just read them. Be able to think through different things. It's also a command to treat her as fragile. Okay? Remember, learning. Dwell with your wife with understanding. That's a command by Peter. We are called as husbands, and we'll, we'll bring this all together. It's a command to treat her as valuable. Who has something, like, expensive that they wouldn't let their kids, have, like, play with in their house, but it's, like, on display? Anybody have anything? Because I'm a baseball card collector, and when I was young, my uncle um, had went to... Uh, the New York Yankees training camp like in Sarasota, Florida when he was like five years old. It was in the 60s and he had a training roster and he had it signed by Mickey Mantle. And he had that frame and he gave it to me when I was like a teenager. And I have that still. It's in a little frame, but I wouldn't let the kids play with it or take it out of the case and draw on it and treat it as whatever. It's fragile. It's an old piece of paper. It's not the most important thing in the world, but it's fragile. I wouldn't want them playing ball near it and break the glass or whatever the damage or do anything like that. But who's got trash cans outside of the house or dumpsters? We all do, right? Sometimes it's like the gar garbage men like see how hard they can bang it on their truck and how far they can throw it back in your yard, right? It's all good. I don't even care. I don't care about trash cans. I don't value them. And if I broke one, I literally just called WCA and said, hey, I broke my can. Can you bring me another one? I, don't, I can't call the Yankees and say, hey, can you get me another sign to Mickey Mantle's 1967 train roster? It's not going to happen, right? So it's a command as husbands to treat their wives as fragile, as valuable. Right? And the text says, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, okay? This was radical in Peter's time. Women were oppressed, discounted. They walked behind their men, teaching that men were to treat their wives with as co-equals and also as joint heirs. That was revolutionary. I mean, these guys were like, what? For real? I mean, this is what we're supposed to do. And I mean, they can always just point back just years ago to the way Christ lived. All sacrifice. Didn't treat women that way. Didn't treat anyone unequal. So it was revolutionary during that time. So do you see your wife 
as a fragile vessel. Worth protecting, worth treasuring, regardless of the way in which she treats you, even if it's unfairly. Or maybe you deserve it. But you still protect her and treat her as valuable. So it's a command to treat her as valuable. Uh, any husband who is abusive, disrespectful, or belittling is defying the will of God, period. It's very clear. Multiple texts, not just Peter, Paul, Corinthians, Colossians, multiple places. And we'll probably jump to a few of those through the week. We have time. Next one, learning effects of spiritual life. So So in the latter half of that, it says, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Heirs together of the grace of life is next. That's what he's saying. And that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter's specifically talking about the salvation prayers of a husband to a wife. If you cannot dwell with your wife with understanding, treat her as fragile, and as Peter said here, treat her as equal, and protect her, provide for her, spiritually care for her, then praying for your wife and her salvation, spoiler, your prayer's going to hit the ceiling. That's it. It's not going to go anywhere else. You're not even living consistent with what Peter's saying. So, yeah, your, your, your spiritual life is going to be hindered, and your prayers are going to be hindered. It's, uh, I mean, it rests, the spiritual condition of your house rests on the husband. Doesn't mean that your kids and your wife aren't responsible for their own sin, but the husbands provide the environment. Okay? So, Perhaps your relationship with your wife is a reflection of your spiritual life. If you lack loving Jesus, serving the Lord, and serving people, chances are you're going to lack loving your wife and serving your wife as well. Okay? This may also be true of your counselors. Another passage to consider, and it's not in here, is Psalm 66, 18. It says, if you regard sin in your heart, the Lord does not hear. Psalm 66, 18. Here's another translation. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Cherish gives that idea of value. I place a special place of sin, and I, and I feed it, and I nourish it. If, if you were doing that, then you're prayers are not going to be heard, and the Lord would not have listened. So, something to keep an eye on in terms of our own spiritual life, but also in terms of our counselees as well. Second one, what did Peter just say? The second word is loving. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. I, I do like this verse. I'm not perfect at serving in this verse, but I do enjoy this verse. We memorized it last year for, for one of our small groups. But we'll just read the first couple verses. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Can't you imagine... You're on the altar. God gives you a wife. 
you get married. Because God has given you a wife. I'm speaking for the men. Because God gives women a husband too. But this is primarily for the husband. So I'll read this again and I'll do the Brandon Yost commentary. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church. You do the same. And gave himself for her. Sacrificially. That he might sanctify and cleanse her. For the purpose of sanctifying, setting her apart, and cleansing her, washing her from sin, keeping her from sin, but using the word, by the washing of the water of the word, by the word. So using God's word to sanctify her, set her apart, and cleanse her. For the next purpose, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, that you can present your wife back to God, Sanctified, cleansed, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Another purpose, that when you give her back to God, she will be holy, set apart, and without blemish. That's, that's what Paul's heart is. That God gives us all the grace, the power, and the Holy Spirit inside of us to be able to do it. We can do it starts with us. So, it'd be good to know what love is, though, because we do live in this world. We're not of this world, but we're in this world, and it is very easy to get confused. You're constantly bombarded. Advertising is one of the biggest money makers in the world. You deserve this. Buy it on credit. You work so hard. You don't deserve anything. You know what we deserve? Hell, that's right. We deserve hell. That's it. Advertising says you deserve a new car. No, you don't. You don't. I don't care how hard you work. You don't deserve a new car. Let's just be honest and be real. The world is going to pump false teaching in your heart. So let's see what the world says about love. What is love? American culture doesn't help. Culture describes love as a synonym for romantic feelings. In the world, when, uh, when the word is used in context other than romantic feelings, it's, also, it's always closed in feeling-oriented context or temporary feelings or whatever makes you feel good. Self. 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 Well, let's look at the, the word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So connect that. Loving. Giving. We're going to have to go quick because I'm running out of time. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live, in the, live by faith in the Son of God who loved and gave. Loved me and gave himself for me. Sacrifice to him. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Loving, giving. Common theme. So let's look at some things real quick. So the biblical love is a test of masculinity, and this is God's masculinity. This is gentle, self-sacrificial action, commitment. That's God's and biblical masculinity. Hollywood or the world is proud, arrogant, selfish, oppressive, maybe chiseled jaw too, right? I don't know, but it ain't God's 
and in God's love. So let's look at some. Worldly love. Love is a feeling. Love is an action. Love is all about me. Love is about all those around me. Love is based on what you've done for me. Biblically, love is unconditional, regardless. Love is a phase, temporary. God's love, love is a commitment. Love is about getting, worldly. Love is about giving. Love is about receiving. Love is about serving. I mean, I don't know about you, just in the last session with sex, when I first heard that, when I was going through school, I was mind blown. I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you for real? My whole life, I'm thinking the exact opposite. And I'm like, wow, God is so good. He's so consistent. And it's the exact opposite of the world. That's refreshing, right? But I was like, man, I was like 25 before I even heard that, you know? I'm 44 now, and I was like, wow, I'm glad I found that out before I got married. Because that would have been a disaster. Um, it's, it's great. Keep going. Actually, I think you get the idea. Let's skip those. We're going to run out of time. Okay. How are husbands to love their wives? Let's see if I got that on there. What degrees of love are we to show? First, did you have that chart on your paper? Was it all filled out? Good. So you've got all your stuff so far, right? I don't want to. I don't want to blow through stuff if you have stuff to write down. How are husbands to love their wives? What degrees of love? Number one, first, First John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. So we show love first. We are the first ones to come back after a disagreement or an argument. We come back first. Demonstrate. We're head of the household. We should be doing that. That's the most. Husband, love your wives. Same verse we just looked at. The church didn't love Christ more than Christ loved the church. So wives shouldn't love the husbands more than the husbands love the wives. Let's just take the correlation there. Husbands first, most. Sacrificially as well. Loving is giving. Sacrificially. Jesus sacrificed his life for the church. Next one is unmistakably. First John 3.18, my little children, let us not love in word and tongue, but neither or neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. Make it absolutely evident. Not only with your words. But they need to be done in action because love isn't action. If you tell your wife you love her all the time, but don't not demonstrate that with your hands and your feet, then they are empty words. In spite of faults, Romans 5.8, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. In that while my wife is still mad at me, I will still love her and not treat her according to the way she's treating me. So out of the character of my heart as a husband, which should be akin to Christ because of the relationship Christ and the church, husband and wife, out of my character should I be loving my wife, not based off of her dad 
or the way she treats me or if dinner wasn't on the table or anything like that. Any other type of excuse you want to use to not fulfill the command of God to love them. Next one. Ooh, it bounced them all, didn't it? I did not hit that button six times. <laughs> love as your own body. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We're going to come back to that one, because that's later. But love her as your own body, as a selfless servant, not based on her performance, like I had talked about. doesn't matter what she does or doesn't do. That can be hard. However, you've got to be prepared. Preparation. Being ready. And I tell my kids this sometimes. Be ready for disappointment. Don't expect it, but be ready for it so that you do not sin. Be prepared. Hope for the best, but be prepared for disappointment. If, you, if you're prepared for it, then you have got a battle plan in your heart, prepared to say, regardless, I'm going to honor the rules. Right now, right here, when I get home, I'm going to hang up. I had one guy, I heard from someone, they hang up all their work on a tree outside, and then they walk in the door. They don't bring all their work problems into the house. They'll physically just hang something on a tree, and they'll not bring any of their work problems as, as a man coming home from work and not dump it on their family. Not based on her performance. Volitional, which is voluntary. Uh, John 3.16, Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. We voluntarily serve our wife sacrificially and love her. Ten is intense love for her. Intense, passionate, extreme. I play ice hockey up at the rink. I just started playing a couple years ago. I am pretty intense. <laughs> I just love it. But there's guys out there on my team that are like 50 and 60, and it's like, they're kind of skating about this fast. And I'm like, that's not intense. I'm intense. So I can understand intensity. But a couple other words are strong, extreme, passionate, enormous. Enormous love for her. Your love should be bigger than your kids' love for your mom. Right? You know, they come up and hug mom and love her, and you're just like, man, your, hus your husband love should be bigger than that, greater than that, more thoughtful and creative. Unending love for her. Doesn't stop. Unselfish love. Purposeful love. Do you have verses for the number 12? You do? Philippians 2, 6, 7? Good. Okay. And then Hosea and Goma. That one's hard. Three times a prophet was told to love his wife. Hosea purchased her back. She did not deserve his love, but he went back and bought her some prostitution and cared for her and loved her. God, God commanded that she do. So even if your wife was a goma, God gives you the grace and the power and the ability to love her. So, bro, <laughs> I don't know many people that have wife like goma. So, I mean, let's put it in perspective. We shouldn't be complaining about cold dinner. You know what I mean? I'm being dead serious. Have a perspective. 
that wide. As wide as Genesis and Revelation. Help, help, help the counselees understand. Because we're just we're so focused on this little thing. But let's let's walk it out a little bit. Let's walk back and see the whole horizon of really what's going on here and how good God is. Again, these stories, they we gotta see that. You gotta connect the dots. Otherwise you're gonna miss it. And then you're going to fall for some little tiny dangly thing and then miss it. You're going to struggle with it. Go, Man, it could be a lot worse. God is good. I can assure you that. And God's love. Our love for our wives should mirror God's love. Mm. Next one. Has his own body. Yeah. I like this. It's tough though. The husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Mm. When I wake up, wash my body, and now that I have a beard, I even, I even put beard oil in my beard. I'm like, I take care of myself. I don't even think about it, because I do it every day for 44 years. Right? Or maybe my mom did for the first five. I would give credit where credit's due, but still, I do it so often, I don't even think about it. I don't even have to get creative. And Paul, Paul's saying, love your wife that way. You shouldn't have to think. You should be doing it just like you love your own body. And he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. That sounds tricky. But what Paul's saying is, you receive and bring great blessings to your marriage and yourself when you are following the commands of God to love your wife and learn your wife and keep her as fragile and protect her and provide for her. That is great blessing for you and your family. And also, it's a great blessing, albeit try not to make it a motivation for that, is when she walks around church, she glows. And that is a product of your spiritual protection, provision, and love for her. She doesn't look beaten up. Physically either, but she doesn't look spiritually beaten up. Or she's been belittled or not taken care of. But she is the crown of your spiritual uh, provision. But that comes from God. We don't bring anything to the table. Paul says, I can't boast about any of that. Even the stuff I was doing was not boastworthy and would not get me to heaven at all. So we don't boast on that and it's not our motivation either. However, it's just a result of honoring the Lord in that area. As his own body. So we'll go through that a little bit. To cherish, warm, gentle. And I tell counselors this, I'm like, it's so easy to do when life is good, when she's, when she's great or easy to get along with, whatever, whatever, fill in the blank. It's easy to do. It's easy to cherish, to love, and care, and preserve, and provide. It's when times are tough. What is going to come out? Is it going to be your love for God that comes out in cherishing her, and providing for her, and being gentle, having gentle tones, careful in your words, Protect her spiritually, emotionally, physically. Help her around the house, assist with the chores. So I tell people this too. 
some guys get home after work, long day, covered in grief, and they just want to veg out. But I've worked all day. I'm like, yeah, your day just started. You go home, and now you spiritual work begins. Let's go. Let's get to it. Because that's the, that's the work that's going to last. The work during the day, yeah, provides you all the necessary things, and maybe even more than the necessary things. But that's a, you can't, you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul attached to it. You ain't taking nothing with you. So make sure that spiritual work is good too. Don't veg out. <laughs> There's no command there that says, oh yeah, oh yeah, after this time you can veg out. Find no command for that. There isn't. So, uh, share life concerns. That can go back to the IOU and the learning. You're talking with your wife and you're, you're becoming one, as Pastor Kevin would talk about. It's just another area in which you're becoming one flesh. Is talking about your dad, sharing, uh, and then show appreciation. Tell her each day. This is, this is a lot of what I give out to. This is just a tagged homework assignment of thankful lists and ways in which you need to serve your wife once a day. If we meet in 14 days, or if we meet in seven days, that's seven different things you did creatively, not something you do every day already. If you already do the dishes, that's not service. It is, but it's not what I'm asking for, because I'm asking for creativity. I want you to have to think about it, and I want it different. You can't do the same thing all seven days. That's like you thought one day, and then the rest was just clockwork. I don't want that. Neither does the Lord. He doesn't want you to get into autopilot. You, you gotta, you got to regain that stuff, because when you were dating your wife before you were married, you were creative, I know it. I was too. I was thinking all kinds of stuff. Surprise her. I'm going to do this. I'm going to call my friends. We're going to get all this stuff together, man. We're going to do all this for her. doesn't happen when you're married. You kind of just lose that. You got to redo it again. You got and you lose focus of that. So as counselor, you want to help them think through that stuff to go back to dating your wife, loving her, showing her. Show appreciation. All right. Next one's nourish. Cherish and nourish to feed and provide for. Again, this is still along the lines of loving yourself. If you if you love yourself, you will love your wife. And he who loves his wife loves himself. So, feed, provision, no price is too great if the need is big, just as you would for yourself. Intellectual well-being, social well-being, spiritual well-being. Begin conversations with the intent to listen. Listen to understand, not listen to speak. Listen to understand. So, I worked through some of these things with counseling. Social well-being. Don't talk bad about your wife. Can't believe my wife did that. Can't believe this. Can't believe that. I go gossiping about your wife. That's not, not, that's not good social well-being and caring for your wife. I mean, it, it, it sounds obvious, but struggle. Most of my counseling is other churchgoers from different churches who don't have counseling ministry. Tell them to send them to me. I'll stay here for 10 weeks and I'll send them right back. Uh, 
Some of us know, know the Bible better than me. That's great. That's great. That makes it easy to teach. They already know it. Ask them to memorize. Already memorized it. They already know it. So what's the problem? The disconnect between knowing the word and believing the word. You do what you believe. That's for sure. You do what you believe. So you know the Bible, but in doing it, you got to trust the Lord. Trust in him and not your own understanding for life. So getting people to rubber meet the road. That's what I do. That's what God does through me. I don't do anything. I just share the word. It's such a blessing. I love it. Love what I do. And I love to see the light bulbs and people be like, wow. Just like the first time I heard from last, last uh, session. Just, I was just, wow. Amazing God. And I love to see that in people. And they just, they get, their light is under a bushel. That's what it is. And you're just kind of breaking that bushel off. Just saying, don't hide it. Just helping them see the light. Overcome bitterness or the tendency to, toward bitterness. That's Colossians 3.19. Let me read that. I like it. It's fun. That one I did not have pegged yet. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. But you notice in verse 18, there's one command for the wives. Submit to your own husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands have two commands. Love your wives and do not be bitter. Or, if you like it better, bitter not with your wife. Right? It's a command. Another word for bitter is frustrated or irritated as well. Two commands. It was the same situation in Colossians that Paul was talking to as Peter, 1 Peter 3. It was countercultural to treat them as equals or respect. It was countercultural. This whole stuff is just like crazy today. But this is what he says. Don't be bitter toward them. So here's a good way to um, counteract or fight bitterness. Four promises of forgiveness. And uh, it's not surprising that when I'm in counseling and I ask them, one of my questions in the beginning of the data gathering is how, how often do you seek forgiveness from each other? What? It's just, it's just a foreign concept. I'm like, but you're saved. So you would understand what forgiveness means, right? When you sin, like me, I'm looking in the mirror every day. That means forgiveness. Why is forgiveness not a regular part of your vocabulary? So we work through forgiveness. This is a great, great tool. I promise not to bring the matter up to use against you. And actually, in the third week, I'll be speaking on forgiveness uh, next month. Fantastic. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I promise not to bring the matter up to use it against you. I promise not to bring up the matter to anyone else, which would be gossip. I promise not to dwell on it, which is rehashing what happened over and over and over. And the last one is, I promise to treat you as if the sin never happened. This is difficult, and it takes time. 
to take time. Because there will be some sins that you'll never forget. But God doesn't call us to forget. Forgiving is not, it can take place without having to forget what happened. And we'll, we'll talk about that next month. But this is a good way to overcome bitterness. The last word is leader. Learner, lover, and leader. So Ephesians 5, 23 through 25, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands and leave them. Here is a, uh, wives, just as a side note, wives want husbands to lead. Begging to lead. God has placed this responsibility in the husband, but not to dominate. Here's a couple, here's a couple things that a counselee wrote years ago. It says, in our home, the husband's word is law. In our home, he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't feel like doing. He shouldn't be asked to do anything by his wife either. His responsibility consists of going to work and paying bills. He shouldn't be asked to do anything or go anywhere. He should not buy anything or fix anything or help the wife with anything. The wife should fix anything that's broken or needs to be fixed. She should not go outside or do anything other than household responsibilities. She should not use the telephone when he is home nor be on the telephone when he's trying to call her. She should do all the gift buying for family and friends. She should never be tired or ill or busy. She should never take the blame for anything that goes wrong. She should never notice when she sinned against. She should keep all the house in order and all the laundry and mending done. She should always have delicious snacks available at all times. And she should have meals ready when the husband's ready, but not expect him to tell her when that is. And she should make all the sexual overtures, but only when he's in the mood. That was one counselee's kind of take on her house because her husband's law. I've, I've, heard a f I've heard a few of those in counseling. Not all of them for sure. But I have to agree, man. Delicious snacks all the time. <laughs> I'll tell you, that should be law. Uh, I read that and I was like, what was wrong with that? That's good. I, I enjoy that. Um, but that's dictatorship. That's not, that's not leading as a husband like Christ. So leadership is not a dictatorship, but as a manager. And I love this passage. It's not up there, and it might not be on yours, but it's Matthew 21 through 16. Is that on there? It'll, right, it'll be right next to manager. Okay. Matthew 21 through 16. I'll paraphrase it real fast. The parable of the laborer, or the gracious landowner, goes out, grabs laborers in the beginning of the day, he agrees with them that they're going to work a full day, 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. for one denarius. That's one day's wage. And then he goes back to the market and grabs guys at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, at 3 o'clock. And then with one hour left in the day, he goes back to the market and there's still people there wanting to work. And he goes, why are you still here? He's like, we haven't found any work. He goes, go to my vineyard. I'll pay you what's right. And he, t he actually t he says that like four times to the guys at 9, noon, 3 and 5 p.m. He says, I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's right. He sends them out. And at the end of the day, you can see this is where, this is where the people perk their eyes up when Jesus is telling the parable. When he says, and now he begins to pay them with the last, then the first. Because he could have paid the first guys and they would have left. But he wanted to make sure the first guys knew what he was doing. So 
He paid the guys who would only work one hour, a full denarius, a full day. And so the guys who worked all day were like, I'm going to get paid more. They're excited, right? And uh, he gets to them, and they only got one denarius. And, uh, man, that's hard because we're not in that culture because that's what we do, right? We're, we, a lot of us have performance-based pay. So for, to see that is tough to see. But this isn't about the laborers or how much money they make. This is about how gracious the landowner is. Okay? So as a manager ourselves, we can be gracious. And we can be more gracious to those who less deserve it. Okay? And it's the same thing with the thief on the cross. Enjoying all the benefits of heaven. As if you were a missionary for 60 years. That's how gracious God is. That should be the focus of the story. And as a manager and husband who is the head of their wife and their family, it should be gracious and fair. But if you think it's going to be unfair, you have to make sure it's gracious and not unfair in the impoverished way or the, the unbiblical way. Next one is the example of unselfish service. This is just the next verse, verse 17. Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be crucified. Willingly. I still, think, I, I still don't think they understood, because this is the third time he had told them. And I don't know, I don't think they get it. Willingly doing this, unselfish. And then it's just, it's just put right next to each other. Where right after that, I gotta read this. Right after that, Matthew 20, you've got in verse 20, 2020, uh, you've got the uh, mother of Zebedee's sons came down and kneeling down and asked something of Jesus. And he said, What do you wish? She said, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and on the other on the left. But Jesus said, You don't know what you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized, baptized with? And they said, yes, we are able. And he said, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand is not for me to say. Drink my cup is the cup of death. They will suffer for Christ. And they were, they were tortured and killed. Um, John and James. So, selfish service like serving so that they can be sit, set, seated at the right hand of Jesus. Um, maybe not fully their motivation, but their mother asked for it. So that's not how we as, as managers or that's not how we lead our home in selfish service, like do something so that we can receive something back. Proper motivation. Um, let me see if I have this one in here. I do. The test of your servanthood is how you respond when you're treated as such. I say this often, and I use it as a self-counsel tool all the time. Because I serve, I would like to think, a lot. Right? I serve in my job, do stuff for as many people as I can. If I have free moments, I do it. And it's not always I get a thank you. And I always remind myself of this. Treat it like a service. To God be the glory. I'm not going to, my character is not going to sin against those people because they didn't give thank yous. 
because I don't live for fame. I don't live for the praise of men. It's nice to have, though. feels good when people appreciate you, but I don't live for that. Okay? I'm always using this. How do you respond when you're treated like a servant when you serve? You're noble and serve. Good for you. You serve. Good. I just read this all the time. It's clockwork in my brain. It's always playing. It's many, many other things, too. Uh, what do we got? Are we up? Are we on time? 9.20. How are we doing? Okay. Uh, you probably still have some blanks. So the test of your servanthood is how you respond when you're treated like one. Here's a couple examples. We were going to walk through those, just the situation. Do you have those on there? Okay. Now you can fill them out. The selfish leader, leader is, gonna, is going to be doing things for themselves. I put down children bickering in front of the TV. I just said, turn the TV off, go to bed. Go do something else. Go outside and play. You just, you just, you value peace. You want peace. You want a bickering? You just value peace. You don't care about Christ. What does a servant leader do? You sit him down and teach him. Say, you know, we can take him right to James. Right to James 4. Where do wars and fights come among us? James 4, 1 through 6. And sit him down and Okay, well, let's teach them. Sharing, kindness. How does Jesus feel about what you're watching when you're bickering in front? Because Jesus is sitting right next to you. He's here too. He's in the room. So, uh, decision to buy a car. Selfish leader, you're going to buy one for your own and not think about the needs of the family. I've always wanted a two-seater sports car, right, whatever. Servant leader is going to, needs of the family above his own. No, let's go to the next one. Indecision making. He doesn't make all the decisions. She's a helper. She needs her insights. You can delegate responsibilities as appropriate, but she may have gifts that she better love to utilize. My wife has an amazing eye for things. So if she wants to do something, I'm like, what do you think? Yeah. Great, love it. If it benefits you, benefits the kids, and it's wise in terms of spending, get it. So I don't need to have to manage that in terms of micromanagement. I'm already kind of managing it, so I don't need to do it, you know what I mean? And it's all for the glory of the Lord. That's fine. Leadership is positive. Pace setter. In the home spiritually, he's a pace setter. Consistency, consistency, consistency. The initiative. Attitude, not waiting till reminded or nagged to be spiritual. If uh, <clears throat> if your husband says he's going to do it, wives, no need to remind him every six steps. No, we, ne- we need to take the initiative. And intentional about spiritual growth. With a purpose. Not just going through the motions and just doing the same thing. Practicing, applying. Ooh, man, I got two more pages. Okay, are you guys missing any blanks? Okay, so we'll go over. Be a model of self-control. Leadership should be a model of being a servant as seen in Christ. Do you have these? And then the last one, summary thoughts. Uh, Do you have all that written down? Good, let's pray. 
right. I don't like to take up time. So uh, I trust that you've learned. Um, it is a tall order as husbands, but we are the barometer for spiritual growth. And our commands are greater than our wives to submit to us. And as we follow Christ and we love our wives more than everything else, even more than the kids. Remember Pastor Kevin? That permanent relationship? Your kids are temporary. Doesn't mean you don't love them. You just make sure you love your wife ahead of that. It makes submission of the wife that much easier. And that's why he brings blessing to himself. But that's not your motivation. Your motivation, God knows your motivation can't be mocked, so he knows. So make sure our motivations are pure because we love the Lord, we love our wives. And we're grateful that he gave us to her. We didn't have to, and we present her back, unblemished, holy, set apart. All right, let's pray. Oh, wait, does anybody have any questions? Is there anything unclear? I know we don't have any time. I did that on purpose. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We are thankful for this church, Sunrise Baptist Church. We're thankful for the conference, being able to teach, train, and serve you. Love you better. Pray, Lord, that we first apply this to ourselves, that we would be great at applying your word so that we can help others apply your word better. Because we can't give what we don't have. But God, we do have the spirit, and I pray that he is with us as we grow, as we learn, as we teach, as we disciple. I'm just thankful for the provision that you have for us in providing Christ, providing the spirit, providing grace and mercy when we don't deserve it, so that we can grant that to others, grant comfort and love and encouragement, but also grow. We love you and thank you for this time. We, give, we ask that you give everybody safe travels from here and bring them back tomorrow and better serve you, better become more like Christ. In Jesus' name.